You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen with Nashville Fertility, and I am surrounded by my lovely and lively co-host, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey, everybody. Well, so we were talking beforehand as Carrie was drinking some coffee and got choked on it a minute ago. We were like, so... What's it that? was not coffee. Don't oh, wasn't. dare malign and slander me in such oh. a fashion. Oh, well then, okay. So this, so I just came up, let's just talk about what's your choice. Are you a coffee person, tea person, or are you both? So or tell something us, else. Or something else, yeah. So in my personal, humble, and completely right opinion, um, <laughs> coffee belongs in ice cream as a mocha flavoring only paired with chocolate. Yeah, <laughs> it is acceptable to be found in, you know, cupcakes and cookies and ice cream and other dessert type uh, items. The occasional coffee rub on a piece of meat or something like that. But beyond that, it is completely inappropriate to smell or have around. And oh my you know, goodness. why would Carrie, someone drink motor oil? We've been pretty good friends now for almost three years. And I never knew that. I didn't realize you were an anti-coffee person. Who knew? I, I, so, so coffee of the month wow. is not a good gift for Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. Oh, I mean, man. <laughs> my my husband gets coffee of the month because he has been a coffee drinker ever since I've known him. And he's like straight black coffee, no cream, no sugar, no nothing. And so he gets these, you know, fun coffee of the month things. Yeah. And he always opens them and smells them and he tries to offer them to me. And we're like, why? 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 It's it smells horrible. Like a true act of love in wow. my household is me cleaning out coffee the coffee grounds sm- from his coffee maker. Who thinks coffee smells bad? Even even my non coffee drinking husband like still yeah. likes the smell of it. Yeah. That is weird. Wow. No, no, it's scary. Like, I don't mean to call you weird, but like it is a little I unusual. A gene. I, I think there's some gene for that or something. I think it's like, like cilantro gene. Weird, yeah, it's like but... the cilantro gene. You're missing the coffee gene. I mean, Man. I, I have only just recently found it acceptable to drink the super sugary loaded Starbucks drinks that are so massive. About 20,000 calories for each cup. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like 20,000 calories per cup. And you, the only um, hint of coffee that's in it is in the name. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the caffeine load, which is the only you, reason I drink you, While we're on this and discovering things, do you actually drink tea? Um, I, have, I usually have a bunch of herbal teas. Like I always have peppermint tea and chamomile tea oh, in my yeah, office. Okay. And and I always have a stash at home. Okay. Um, you know, I happen to have apple cider in the house. And so I've got the mulling spices for that. And so but I've do been you drink tea, recently. like true tea, not, not herbal 
tea. Well, that's true like, tea. That's just a different kind of true tea. So, I mean, really, it's like, like tea to say, leaves, not a tea. Tea leaves, not chamomile, not like herbs that make your tea like pink or green. Okay, but like, <laughs> what kind of pink tea are you? I'm drinking? guessing you don't drink tea. <laughs> no, like I mean, like I enjoy like an herbal tea. Okay, but like I'm talking like a like if you went to London and ordered a cup of tea, would you drink that? Uh, oh, yes, yes, I would drink that over coffee. I I usually don't seek it out. I mean, I really do <laughs> like the, the to say wow. it's rather than the teas, but, you know, a really good Earl Grey, I'll drink. There's some of the morning, you know, blends. That I'll drink. Like some of the Christmas blends with the cinnamon and apple overtones. Like those I will drink, but the regular teas, like it's just not. I'm, I'm curious, like, does this, like when you, t- I mean, we all know you have a sweet tooth like this all goes along with the whole like like sweet versus bitter like uh-huh. are there do you generally have an aversion to like bitter dry flavors she's trying to diagnose you <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna do some gene research after we get I'm, off here I'm today. curious I'm like yeah. I'm wondering if it's like a, a taste like a taste bud thing because what I'm hearing like you like anything that doesn't seem like real coffee or tea <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, because I don't. And traditionally, I have always avoided it for the caffeine because, I mean, I was, I'm 40 now and I didn't drink caffeine really with any regularity until 39 and a half. Like it's really been in the last six months that I've regularly had some infusion of caffeine. And even then, that's not consistent. That explains some things. She avoided my conversation about food, though. (laughs) I don't like bitter stuff. I think 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 that's that's what it is. I think, I think you just don't real. like bitter stuff. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Well, I like I like both, but I put sweet and low in both of them. So I mean, I sweeten them up. You can make them sweet. I love I love Southern people who put sweet and low. <laughs> oh sure, splendid, sweet and low. Come on. <laughs> Do you know the remedy for um, hiccups where you eat a uh, teaspoon of sugar to make them go away? Right. No. When I was a kid, I was in an airport and I had the worst hiccups. And so I grabbed a sugar packet and downed it. It was not sugar. It was sweet and low. And I thought I was going to die. <laughs> it was awful. Do not recommend zero stars. Okay, so now that we spent the whole time on Carrie, she's neither coffee nor tea. What are you, Susan? Coffee or tea or both? So I preferentially drink coffee. Like I like coffee that has a good, robust, strong flavor. Um, I put cream in it, no sugar. Um, like lattes and stuff. I I do like plain lot like plain lattes, things like that. Um, I will drink tea. Um, I do prefer my tea with cream too. Um, but if I have a choice between the two, I'm not like adverse to tea. Um, having celiac, there are some teas that have like additional flavorings and stuff like that. So I have to be real careful that there's no gluten or anything like that. So I tend also to coffee because it's relatively safer for me to get. So so you're saying you uh, like things that appeal to your dark and bitter soul. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Okay. Yeah, call in your bitter soul. As, as long as we're clear here. Got it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what so about you? I like one cup of coffee in the morning with Splenda and lots of cream. And then in the evening, I drink like chamomile tea or something like that. And I do, my daughter did get me the tea of the month club last year. But the problem is a lot of that has caffeine in it. I just don't want to drink that at night. But um, so I, I do both. I like both in the same Very day. 
Excellent. All right. Well, boy, that was a little more controversial than what I thought it would be. I thought that was a, when I came up with the topic, I thought it was kind of stupid, but actually we learned a lot about each other, I think. <laughs> well, so, let's go. You ready to do a question? Yeah. Before we move on to our topic, Susan has our question. All right. Hi, Fertility Docs. Thank you so much for reading my question. I've been binge listening for the past two weeks. Um, she's listened to 80 episodes in those two oh weeks. My <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the moral of the story seems to be age, age, age. I'm 39 with a two and three-year-old. And we started trying again 10 months ago with two missed abortions ending in DNC. We are embarking on the IVF journey, assuming that these were probably both chromosomally abnormal embryos that have not gotten labs yet to rule out other problems. My question is this, how much variation about the mean is there when it comes to fertility in general and ovarian reserve by age in particular? To me, it seems like very few things in life and health are as certain as the t statistics that are often given for each age group. Thanks. There's always someone who is in the two standard deviation greater right, or fifth lesser. percentile, yeah. Yeah, like there is there is always someone in the 1%. And as the uh, deeply classic uh, and important socio, uh, social um, commentary movie, Dumb and Dumber, um, <laughs> has has uh, noted is that, you know, you have the chance of a snowball in hell of dating me. And it's, so you're saying I have a chance. And, and that holds true with fertility because there will always be someone who is in that upper 1.5 to 2 standard deviations above the mean who's going to do great. Like there mm -hmm. is a reason that people have spontaneous pregnancies. I mean, 49 is the oldest, no, 50 was the oldest patient that I ever took care of who had a spontaneous pregnancy. So mm -hmm. this stuff happens. But that's not normal. It's not it's normal. Not common, it's not normal. It's and the, the likelihood of you being in that group is really small. But if you're in that group, it's fabulous. And also there are criteria where people going through IVF who have really low criteria for follicle count and AMH and all of those things, sometimes those people conceive naturally just fine. And you've had two, two missed, um, uh, missed abortions or spontaneous miscarriages. And so that means sperm and egg are coming together. So it's, can you play the game long enough to get a good matchup that works? And IVF can help speed that along, but it's not the end all be all. And so really it's what kind of gambler are you and uh how do you like your statistics you know sweet or bitter like you you know you either have the one percent chance of succeeding or the 99 percent chance of not but you are not going to have one percent of a baby you will either have the baby or you won't and so you know the fact that you're making that you're getting pregnant is a huge well, she's had she's she's successful pregnancies in the past she's, yeah she's yeah. had four pregnancies she has a two-year-old and a three-year-old so i would argue that you are a little different than the average patient we see. So therefore, I can already tell you, you're not the average patient that we see. The other thing too, it would be interesting to know what your AMH is. Not that AMH can offset the age component because the age component really speaks to the genetics. And so you're right, probably the miscarriages that you had, very likely 40% chance probably were due to chromosomal abnormality. But we do find particularly with IVF, if somebody has a high egg number and makes a bunch of eggs, if you were to do something like IVF, the beauty of that is the more eggs we have, the more we can test and the more likely we are to find that, you know, one embryo that's genetically normal for you. So I really would think a lot about IVF, um, particularly if you have a good egg number. And even if you don't, like Carrie said, every now and then we'll find somebody even with just a small number of eggs that ultimately ends up going on finding one that's normal and they get pregnant with that one. 
Yeah, I, one of my rules is I never say never because I've seen never happen. Um, I don't know exactly how many times, right. like some other doctor would tell somebody that they were never going to get pregnant and they come in and see me for a consultation and then they like, get spontaneously pregnant. And I'm like, I, I love to take the credit, but yeah. you know, that I, 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 you know, we're, we're happy to get you pregnant no matter how it happens. Um, but exceptions are that, you know, yeah. um, I mean, and you know, we'll see. We hear news stories about like amazing celebrities who are getting pregnant at these like incredible ages and things like that. Um, what I have to say is, y- you are getting the spin of the story that you are, that they want you to hear, okay, and not necessarily the bitter truth of everything else that they've gone through. And um, exceptions do happen. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't be the world we live in. But most people are going to be normal for their age. Yep. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit on this episode about endometriosis and infertility. So Carrie, you want to start us off and tell us what is endometriosis? So endometriosis is tissue that should be lining the inside of the uterus that has set up shop and made a home outside (laughs) of the place where it should be. So there are a couple theories of how this happens. One is a retrograde menstruation theory where everyone, when they have periods, most of the blood is going to come down and out through the vagina, but some of it's going to go up and through the tubes and go into the peritoneal cavity. That's why when we do laparoscopic surgery on someone who happens to be having a period, you can oftentimes see a little bit of blood pooling in the bottom of the peritoneal cavity. And so that's um, that's one potential theory. There's an ectopic implantation theory where, uh, or a migration theory where it didn't move to the correct place when everything was forming. And so instead of 100% of it being lining the uterus, there's there's little implants here and there. Um, and then there's also an immunological theory where it's that the the function is totally normal. You know, you've got you have some blood that goes into the peritoneal cavity and that's normal and expected, but the immune system's response to it is completely inappropriate. And so instead of clearing it up and just, you know, cleaning up in its little dustpan and then throwing it out with the trash, um, it it sets up shop. And the immune cells that should be clearing it up, um, instead of just like very kindly asking it to leave the bar, they get into a full all brawl, a full out brawl, and <laughs> the whole bar gets destroyed as a result of these two cells uh, not talking nicely and just taking it cleanly outside. So Susan, how does that interfere with infertility? What does it what does it do? She's cracking up at Carrie right now. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love <laughs> Carrie's explanations. It's great. It's great. Um so I I kind of think of it in two categories. Uh, I it can have an effect both structurally and it can have an effect kind of chemically. So I'm going I'm going to take structural first. Okay. Um so when you have endometriosis, you can have these implants actually anywhere in the body. They are they are most likely to happen on the surface of things. However, we can see endometriosis in ovaries, which that's the one time we can see endometriosis on ultrasound. Um, and you'll have a, a follicle that instead of being full of clear fluid is full of blood essentially and when we do surgery and we open it up it we call them chocolate cysts because it's it generally looks like old blood and it looks like liquid chocolate <laughs> and because gynecologists and physicians in general are known for ruining food yeah yes. 
by comparing them to bodily functions. Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> so this endometriosis, like I said, ovaries, it can be on your tubes, it can be on your uterus, it can be on your bowel. In rare cases, it can be in even distant places in your body, like in your lungs or your brain. Those are really, really unusual, but we do sometimes see those. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we see it on those surfaces, those surfaces... You think about it when somebody has surgery and incisions get made, essentially those surfaces are braided. They're not the healthy, smooth, non-contact surfaces that they're meant to happen. And adhesions form. And those adhesions adhesions are essentially scar tissue. um, And those adhesions can disrupt the normal flow of where things need to be. So sometimes, um, so your fallopian tubes are very delicate pipelines that within them, they have little projections that help egg, sperm, embryos, everything move to the right place. Those little projections can get damaged. The ends of the fallopian tubes can get um, essentially blocked or have an abnormal shape. Um, sometimes when you have an HSG, a dye test of the fallopian tubes, we'll note that the the ends of a fallopian tube can look clubbed. So like the end of a club, it's nice and smooth instead of being feathery. Um, the end of a fallopian tube is called fimbria, which is essentially a Latin word, I believe, for um, feathers or fingers. And um, so that that's really kind of structurally how it has its biggest impact. And so chemically, how does it have an impact? Chemically, that endometrium is producing all kinds of stuff <laughs> that is not that is not making it friendly for eggs and sperm to get together. And so that's really where things have a big impact when we need to be more advanced in our ther- therapies, especially for people who have advanced endometriosis in, in being more aggressive and doing things like IVF because we can take egg and sperm outside of the body, let them really create a good um, healthy embryo and have a good foothold on progression before putting it back into the endometrium at the right phase where where it's going to nestle in and not have that negative effect. So Carrie, what kind of symptoms do people have when they have endometriosis? What's Uh, the gamut? There's a whole big gamut. What's the gamut of symptoms they can have? The gamut is nothing to everything. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's what I was trying to get you to say. Yeah. And the the reason for that is though sometimes we have patients who are have zero complaints and we need to go in to do surgery for some totally benign, unrelated reason. And we get in there and it looks like someone has taken a uh jar of rubber cement and just poured it all over and then taken like a blowtorch and and you know solidified it and then uh, put you know, put just another layer of glue on top of it. And mm-hmm. the patient feels totally fine. Um, we have other patients who come in and they are complaining of severe pain during their period, severe pain during their entire cycle, pain with sex, pain with uh, bowel movements or urination, needing frequent urination, um, everything in the free world. And and you go in and and sometimes you see the rubber cement and glue scenario but sometimes you really don't see hardly anything. And you look in and you see like, well, there's a tiny little bleb. There's a powder burn. There's a little erythematous or bright red spot. And those look like endo. But overall, things look really pretty clear. And if you didn't know her history going in, you would say, oh, this is a completely normal pelvis. We don't see anything. Um, and so the symptoms can really be pretty pretty widespread. And then you've got some of the 
um, the the really weird things like you know the the catamenial endometriosis, where every time someone gets a period, they they have bleeding in their lungs because there's a little un- implant of endometriosis that has made it up to their lungs or their diaphragm or some other completely inconvenient place, and they have symptoms from that. That is not normal. So please don't think the next time you get a winter cold and you get a bloody nose of, oh my God, I have endometriosis of the nose. That is not what I'm saying. Uh, please restrain so yourself. Is there any cyclicity to kind of when people have symptoms with endometriosis or they have it all the time? It can be both. Maybe. So, <laughs> so the answer is yes. Um, for both of those things are true. So there are some people who just have really painful periods and then their periods are done and and it abates. There are other people who just have pain all the time. There are people who have pain with ovulation and with their period. Um, Really anything, anything goes, especially with bad endo. It's, it's tough to correlate it just to the endo because anything, anything is fair game. So Susan, how is it diagnosed? Can we do it with ultrasound? So if you have endometriosis in the ovaries, and you have serial ultrasounds, so you have multiple ultrasounds that show something that kind of has a ground glass appearance, most of those are going to be endometriosis. But with the exception of that, really the diagnosis of endometriosis has to be made um, by having surgery and somebody looking with a camera with their own eyes. And, you know, it's something that in the field of reproductive endocrinology, we have definitely seen a a change over really probably about two decades. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say 20 years ago, if you walked into an REI's office, there was probably about a 70 plus percent chance that you were going to have a diagnostic laparoscopy. Yeah. um, Just to take a look, you know, it's like, oh, you're here. Let's take a look. look. Let's look at your innards. And um, that that has changed. And I think there's a number of things that have led to that change. And nowadays, you know, there are still um, some places that, that do quite a bit of diagnostic laparoscopy, but I would say that is becoming more and more the exception. When you say diagnostic laparoscopy, what do you mean by that? So first of all, laparoscopy is a surgery where we make small incisions at the belly button, usually two or three other little incisions, and we put a little telescope instrument inside your belly, and we take a look. Um, And so the diagnostic means other than to take a look, we're not sure what we're going to find. Okay. Um, (laughs) We may diagnose things. So that's why it's a diagnostic laparoscopy um, to see what's there. And then if there's something there to ideally do the best we can to fix whatever condition we might come upon. So Carrie, you'd mentioned a little bit about kind of how endometriosis looks. Could you be a little more, go go through that one more time with us? What do we see as physicians when we do laparoscopy and we're looking for endometriosis? So there's everything from the mild end of the spectrum where you put your camera in and when you take a look around, usually the tissue within the peritoneal cavity or the abdominal cavity tends to be um, a nice shade of pink. We're not talking about an angry red or a deep pink. Or a Pepto-bismol. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about just a nice, nice, easy pink. And then, of course, you've got the yellow um, fatty tissue that, that surrounds and is protective of many organs. So and when it's you shiny. Look, and it's shiny and it looks, it looks clean. Like it looks like someone just took a hose and they washed the car and it's got that kind of yeah. listening, clean yeah. appearance to it. When you go in and you start to see uh, a non 
clean appearance. If you start to see like, hey, there's little spots here, like this is more modeled. Um, that's when you start to see that, okay, maybe there's endo here. And it, it has a huge range of what it can look like. Sometimes mm-hmm. it looks like little clear blebs of little bubbles that are sitting that are kind of locked into the surface where, um, I don't know if you've ever put a plastic film over something and you've gotten a, a bubble in the middle of it where it's like popping up. Um, sometimes it looks like that. Sometimes it looks bright red and very vascular and kind of angry looking. Sometimes it's a dark blue to black, what's called powder burn. Sometimes it's got kind of a white, very scarred down appearance. Um, there's, there's just a huge range. Sometimes with the case of endometriomas, it is a big chocolate fluid filled cyst, um, that looks like a, a giant balloon that if you pop it out spore, uh, out pours Hershey syrup. Um, hope nobody was having Sundays for dinner tonight. Or after dinner tonight. <laughs> um, those are, that's a lot of the variation. The other thing that we can see is just incredible scar tissue. Normally everything in the, the abdomen is very loose. You know, imagine a bowl of spaghetti with some olive oil over it, where you just jiggle the bowl and the whole thing moves very easily and the noodles slide around each other without any problem. Now imagine it if there's no sauce on it whatsoever. And it's just that starchy been sitting out for 15 minutes kind of cold pasta where you jiggle it and it all moves as one icky kind of weird unit. Um, no chocolate sundaes tonight, no spaghetti, no spaghetti for dinner. No. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, like I said, gynecologist been ruining dinner for for decades. Um, so everything just kind of sticks together. You know, sometimes you can see it looks like Halloween where, you know how you put all the cobwebs up and, and it just sticks everywhere. I mean, it's just like nothing moves the way that it should. It's all kind of jacked up and pulled out like they're <laughs> tiny little ropes and cobwebs. Um, and gauze holding everything together. Sometimes it's really thick um, and like burlap that's in there holding everything together. Stuff is all jumbled together and, and squished. And there's really a very wide variety of what it can look like. So Susan, you're Sorry, doing so laparoscopy. Yes. I'm so glad you asked Carrie this because her variety of adjectives is unparalleled. I think, I think just the visuals that, that Carrie gives me are unparalleled. I can't I can't do that when I'm talking to patients. Carrie's very good at giving great. interesting visuals. It's great. Oh, shucks. My imagination runs away with me when she's talking. <laughs> All right. So Susan, you're the surgeon. You're in there and you're like, yep, there's some endometriosis there. Yep, there's some there. Yep, there's an endometrioma. Are you going to go, okay, she's got endometriosis. Sew her back up and tell her that the next week. Or what are you going to do when you're in there? So, or what do you hope your doctor is going to do when right. you get in there? So some of it is going to depend on the skill of the physician who is operating on you. Okay. And some people are comfortable in operating in endometriosis and some some people are not. Okay. And, and since our listeners are listening, are, are all the way across the spectrum, if they've never been to see anybody or they may be seeing their gynecologist or they may be seeing a reproductive endocrinologist, it's, it, it's reasonable to set up expectations. There's going to be some people who... If they go in there and they see a ton of endometriosis, they may know that is not where their skill set lies. And remember, our number one rule is do no harm. Okay. First, do no harm. First, do no harm. And so you may have a surgery and they truly do a diagnostic laparoscopy. They look in there and they're like, oh my goodness, that is a lot. I need to get somebody else who is going to be able to take care of this person better. So there is a chance that, you know, we all have people come to our offices that have um, had those types of surgeries. Generally, if you're going to see a reproductive endocrinologist, we're probably going to be a bit more aggressive (laughs) in um, kind of surgically treating your endometriosis. Now, 
Um, and again, how aggressive somebody is, is going to vary from physician to physician. Um, I think most of us feel pretty comfortable in um, cauterizing or burning superficial endometriosis. Some of us will mm -hmm. um, surgically cut out and um, address endometriosis that way. If we have an endometrioma, generally we try to remove the um, kind of sac that was holding the the endometriosis fluid because that helps prevent recurrence. Um, lysing or cutting adhesions to help free things up. Um, now, there, I, I'm sure we have all had those cases that we've done as much of that, but restoring full pelvic anatomy is not always possible. Okay, mm -hmm. because again, and what do you mean by what do you mean by that full so, pel pelvic anatomy? So, you know, when Carrie was talking about you know the spaghetti with the oil versus the spaghetti that's all clumped up. <laughs> So sometimes the spaghetti that's all clumped up is so clumped up that if you try to tear it apart, you're actually going to potentially damage things like the ureter, the tube between the kidney and the, the bladder, the bowel. Um, so again, that that stage of do no harm, we want to address what the... And a lot of it has to do with where are you in your treatment and what are your plans? You know, if you come mm -hmm. in and you're having a laparoscopy for whatever reason and your partner has terrible sperm and we know you're going to do IVF, but you have no pelvic pain, you have no symptoms, like we just happen to be there for some other, you know, you might have a hydrosalpinx that needs to be removed, okay? Um, we're going to kind of deal with what is superficially there, but we need to not lose the forest for the trees. So Carrie, to that end, is there ever a time, say, for example, you wouldn't jump right into surgery, even if you had a pretty high suspicion that somebody had endometriosis? So at this point, a lot of the reasons for surgery, if someone is having pain and they need that address, that's that's a decent reason to go in and say, okay, is there something that's getting pulled, yanked, or otherwise discombobulated such that we could potentially fix it by taking care of some of the scar tissue. So that's, that is one good reason to go in and do, do surgery. Um, the other discussions of whether or not to do surgery. So a lot of times endometriosis can cause a hydrosalpinx or a really fluid filled tube that does not behave normally either or, or, uh, in, you know, including both of not letting the egg and the sperm pass to find each other and have their little party or they can potentially pass and find each other, but the interior structure is so damaged that you're really worried about nectopic pregnancy implantation in the wrong place and causing major drama that way. So we do tend to want to go in and remove hydrocalpinges when we can. And that's always preceded by a conversation of, look, if both of these are abnormal and I take them both, that's IVF for life in order to get pregnant. So there's a lot of pre-counseling that goes into it. Um, the there's big debate as to what you should do about endometriomas, particularly when you're looking at fertility treatment, whether that Size is IUI. matters. Size <laughs> matters, location matters, yeah. accessibility matters. And so if someone has just a little dinky endometrioma, we're not going to go in after it because by removing it, you are inherently damaging the ovary. And so you have mm -hmm. to make the decision of at what point do we want to say going in and removing that cyst is going to make a difference versus just cause damage and not really help a whole lot. And I say removing the cyst very intentionally because just sticking a needle in and draining it doesn't do a whole heck of a lot because mm -hmm. you're just going to have that fluid collect the very next month and you have gotten nowhere. And when Carrie's mm -hmm. talking about damaging the ovary, what she's really saying, please um, <laughs> forgive me for interrupting, but that every time we remove a cyst or cauterize something on the ovary, 
we are, you are losing eggs. You are losing more eggs than what you would have naturally done. And because you're born with all the eggs you're ever going to get, that that can have a huge impact, especially if you're in your upper 30s and early 40s, or if you just inherently have a low egg count. So when we have people who've had um, a bunch of surgeries before, for example, I'm a lot less inclined to go in there and do anything until after I have those eggs out, until after we have a pregnancy, mm-hmm. unless unless I have to go. Because I've had patients who have such huge endometriomas that I just can't ex- access any tissue. Mm-hmm. And so that's got to come out because otherwise nothing's going to grow. Um, but but otherwise, if someone's had a bunch of surgery, I usually try and err on the side of, well, can I get these eggs out? And then can we go in and deal with it? And, you know, that's something that's really changed for sure over the last decade. We used to, if somebody had a two or three centimeter endometrioma, we would definitely go in and take that out before we did IVF on them. And the pendulum has definitely swung in the opposite direction. And I think appropriately so, because when you cut into the ovary, you know, you are going to take away some eggs, you're going to damage some of the eggs that are there. So one last thing, Susan, and I don't know that we as reproductive endocrinologists really say that this is cut and dried or really use this a lot, but talk a little bit about staging because people may see that in the literature, may see something about I've got stage two or I've got stage four. Talk a little bit about the staging and what that really means and why the staging system was really developed. Right. So so the staging system that Abby is referring to is a staging system that was developed um, by essentially the, uh, bleh, I'm totally losing my words here. <laughs> by ASRM, which is our national society. Um, and technically, I think it was the American Fertility Society. Fertility Society, back, AFS. Back yeah. way before. And really, <laughs> the purpose of the staging had nothing to do with prognosis. It had to do with physicians communicating to other physicians. And so there are these lovely little drawings that show us, you know, what is stage one, what is stage two, and each of these progress to having more and more endometriosis in different places. But it was really meant so that if, you know, I do your surgery and I say you have stage two endometriosis, like without even looking at anything else, Carrie or Abby already in their mind have an idea of, okay, she has this, she does not have this. So, you know, these are, these are things for me to think about, or you have stage four endometriosis that, that means something different than stage one. And so I, like I said, it has to do with that communication. Um, It has absolutely nothing to do with how much pain you have. Okay. And it, I would say there are studies that show that more advanced endometriosis, so especially stage three and stage four, they tend to come back faster and with more vengeance, okay? Endometriosis does tend to recur after surgery at the similar stage it was before, okay? And and we know that people with more advanced stage endometriosis are more likely to need more advanced intensive fertility treatments like IVF. but it's not a hard and fast rule. And um, I think a lot of patients don't necessarily... I, I, I can say early in my career, I did a lot more laparoscopy to diagnose endometriosis. And really it was for the purpose mm-hmm. of like, oh, you have stage four endometriosis. We know the chances of you getting pregnant with something shy of IVF is very small. Um, mm-hmm. Because most people, at least in Texas, didn't have 
um, fertility treatment coverage, regardless of what I said, they wanted to try lesser aggressive things to see if it would work, you know? And, and yeah. I think we talked about earlier, are you going to fall into that exception? People want to know if they're going to be that exception. And so it really didn't help that many people make their actual path decision any different. And I think that's a reason why it it hasn't become how, how it has become something we don't do quite as much as we used to. So one last question, this is a little bit, I mean, there's not a real right or wrong answer, Carrie, but just, so if somebody has fairly mild endometriosis versus very severe endometriosis, what prognostic information could you give them after you treated them with surgery? Not, I'm kind of making it a little challenging. <laughs> um, like, typically, if it's really mild, not a whole heck of a lot. Right. I mean, it's, and I think that's a, another reason why we sort of backed off diagnostic laparoscopy, because if somebody's not having a lot of pain, you don't see something on ultrasound, pretty low likelihood they're going to even have it. But if they do, and even if you get rid of it, the chances of improving their outcome is a few percentage points in a given month. And it's probably just not worth the risk to them with surgery. So um, I think there's a lot of good reasons why things have changed as far as not routinely doing diagnostic laparoscopy, unless there's a really good reason to do it. One thing I'd like to mention as a surgeon, the best belly to operate on is the belly that has never been operated on. Okay. Mm -hmm. Every time you have a surgery on your abdomen, you're, you're at increased risk of damage happening to something inadvertently. And so it's one of those things that, oh, again, like uh, Carrie, you probably didn't see it so much in your early career, but I know Abby and I definitely saw it. We would see people who had had four, five, six laparoscopies before they would have even reached 30. And, yeah. um, yeah. you know, that's the, you know, I see that. I'm like, oh, I, I don't like that. That's just, yes. uh, you know, it's kind of setting yourself up for, for something dangerous to potentially happen without that much mm -hmm. return. I mean, realistically, yeah. if you've had that many surgeries, that means you keep on having pain that pain. keeps on recurring. Yeah. And that's for a complete different episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. For us to talk about soon. Yeah. yeah. So to that end, is there anything else that you guys want to add in that we didn't cover in this episode that you think we, our listeners may want to know about? I would like to say that, you know, we live in an information age, okay? Our listeners are listening to us right now because they want information. We like to, you know, Google, why is the sky blue? And, you know, people come in and they're like, do I have endometriosis? And a lot of those people, unless we've done a laparoscopy or, you know, you can see an endometrium or not on your ultrasound, we're not going to have a definitive answer. But that doesn't mean our treatments don't work. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why we're doing the other testing, the ovarian reserve testing, the HSG, your ultrasounds, you know. And so sometimes just realize that even though we may not have that piece of information, that doesn't mean that we're not addressing the possibility that endometriosis may be there. One thing that's important to know is that a lot of surgeons, uh, a lot of REIs, when you go to see them, if they say, you know, look, I think you need surgery. I think there's a fair amount of endometriosis here. I want you to go see my colleague XYZ. It's usually for a reason because especially, and Abby and, and Susan, you guys have probably noticed this as well, but especially when you hit my generation of trainees, 
there was already uh, a division that had happened where the REIs were focusing on one thing and the minimally invasive surgery fellows were focusing on something different. And so we work closely together. I mean, I know exactly who in town I will send people to because they have the time and the OR set up and the support staff in the OR to really do a good job in the same way that I have the setup in the clinic and the lab in my surgery center for doing advanced hysteroscopy to be really good at that. So if your surgeon or your REI is saying, look, I want you to go see XYZ person, there's a reason for that. And like Susan said, first do no harm. And we want to make sure that you get the care that you need. And sometimes that means, okay, I want you to go see this doc. And then you come back and see me after your surgery, bring your op note with you. And then we'll make the next decision that makes the most sense. Yeah, and I would say too, before people were really trained to do minimally invasive surgery, before that was really kind of a, almost like a subspecialty. Um, a lot of times, like earlier in my career, I would operate sometimes with a GYN oncologist because they're kind of geared toward do, doing really big, aggressive surgery. And even the GYN oncologist would say, doing endometriosis surgery is some of the hardest surgery that we do. It's, it's just a really tough surgery. So the key point is, like Carrie was saying, you want to make sure the right person is doing your surgery. You don't want somebody just to go in and look and go, yep, you got endometriosis. Here, you know, and and so ultimately, I think it's probably good to listen to your OBGYN or your REI if they want to send you to somebody else. Like Carrie said, there's a reason for that. And I know the surgeons that I work with, you know, sometimes it's people within my practice, sometimes it's people outside of my practice, um, yeah. kind of depending on the specific needs and timings and location and things like that. But know that we're working with these people. We're you're, you're we're not just having you be sent to them in a vacuum. You know, it's like. You know, if especially if it's somebody outside of my practice, I'll be like, if you see this, then make sure that this happens, especially like the hydrosalpinks conversation. Yeah, um, make sure the egg yeah. the tube comes out. Exactly, sure. exactly. So, you know, it's it, sometimes it takes a village and that's okay. That's okay. We want you to get the best care you can get and get you from point A to point Z as quickly and as safely as possible. All right. Well, to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review in Apple Podcast. We'd really love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, be sure and follow and subscribe Stay to stay updated on all things infertility related. You can also visit FertilityDocsAndCensor.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We love to hear episode ideas. So let us know what you're thinking and want to hear. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll see you next week. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye this podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.